asked for a flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is God's word. We're continuing to look at how the gospel shapes our lives. Pastor Brandon is bringing us through the series, The Gospel for All of Life. And today we, we look at worship. How does the gospel shape our worship? You see, worship is much more than Sunday morning. Worship should be at the center of our lives. Worship should reorient us and redirect us and shape our entire lives so that without worship, our lives are full of holes, heading in the wrong day, wait, directions, unable to deal with the things of life. We could look this morning at a worship service. There's much in Scripture that shows us what went on in worship, in the forms of worship, in the instruments of worship, the movements of worship. But this morning we're going to look at a passage that shows us the very heart of worship. For when we look at what this woman did, we see worship in its fullness. It is the model for us understanding worship. Let's pray. Our Lord, these are spiritual truths. Worship is a spiritual thing. It must be done in truth, and we hope to share truth today, Lord. But it is done through the Spirit, for it is only your Spirit that can take that truth and so weave it throughout our lives and, and move our heart to just explode in the praise and the glory of you, which we do in worship. So Lord, may your Spirit use your word today to speak to each of us precisely where we are in our lives. In Christ we pray. Amen. This morning, I would like us to look at the essence of worship, the primacy of worship, and then the pattern of worship. A classic hymn declares, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That is the essence of worship. We see it pictured here in a little town of Bethany, the outskirts of Jerusalem. And this story is 
told from a little different vantage point in the Gospel of John in chapter 12. So I want to put the two stories together so we see the full picture of what is happening. John informs us that the woman is actually Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she takes a flask of ointment and you have to break the neck off to pour it out. For there was a a gooseneck that would allow a small fragrance to come out and you wouldn't have to waste the perfume itself. It would last a long time. But she broke the neck off and poured out that ointment, that perfume upon the head of Jesus. And then as we put it together with John, the ointment flowed across his body because he says, my body is being prepared for burial. And in John, we see that it gets to his feet. And Mary kneels before him and washes his feet and then takes her hair and dries his feet with her hair. All the while, the disciples are looking at this and they they say to themselves, either privately or murmuring to each other, what's this woman doing? What a waste. She's crazy. And then the scripture says they actually scold her. What are you doing? You are wasting 300 denarii worth of perfume in this one moment. Don't you realize what that could have done in taking care of the poor? But Jesus corrects them and holds up what Mary has done as a model because she has worshipped in this act of anointing him for his burial. The essence of worship is found in value. The value that we ascribe to God himself. That's what we see in this passage. Mark says this ointment was very valuable. It's costly. John reinforces that by pointing out how valuable it was. And the disciples even say 300 denarii. Now, a denarii was one day's labor. So think of that. 300 days, a lunar calendar year salary is taken in that one. Tens of thousands of dollars this is worth and is taken and poured out in an instant. No wonder why the disciples are thinking, Tens of thousands of dollars for this? When Look at what we could have done for the poor. John informs us that Judas has some other ulterior motives for this money, but Mark brings out the disciples are caught up in, in that attitude, and they become very indignant. But do you see, it's all about the worth, all about the value. The word worship, our English word, comes from the word worth. Worship is the expression of worth. It's worth-ship. The Hebrew word for glory, what we do in worship is we glorify God, we magnify him, is the word kabod, which means 
heavy or weighty. And so when you think if you have gold and silver and precious stones, how much do you want it to weigh? You want it to be, you want it to be heavy. The heavier it is, the greater value you possess. We use the word today is that's a weighty decision that I have to make. That's a very important, very significant, very important decision. And if you go back to my younger days, we used to say, when you heard a discussion of import, you go, wow, that's heavy. Man, that's heavy. And what they were saying is, wow, that is so important. That is so significant. What you're saying is so valuable. So worship is caught is really all about us expressing how valuable God is to us. Now, the disciples come off pretty badly in this. And I don't think it's because they don't consider Jesus valuable. I don't think they're sitting there saying, wow, wait a second, Jesus, he's not worth a, a year's worth of salary. He, she's crazy. No, that's not the issue. It's not what they think of Jesus. It's they're missing worship. They don't, aren't thinking in the category of the, what, the, her action being that of ascribing such incredible value to Jesus in that moment. They have pragmatic thinking. Let's get practical here. So the problem with the disciples isn't, I don't value Jesus. It's that they don't understand worship. When I start looking, and then that begins to grate on them. And so they seem to talk to themselves. Maybe it's privately and they're just speaking and it says indignantly indignantly to themselves, or maybe they're whispering to each other. And then they get to the point where they scold her. They publicly scold her. And as I see this, I, I ask myself, do I get worship? When I miss a private time of worship, when I miss a public corporate coming together in worship, do I understand what I'm doing? Or am I like the disciples and I've got some pragmatic reasons for this and that and, you know, we have to fit every... Or have I really understood that I've missed the opportunity to express to God, to a Jesus Christ, that He is the ultimate value of my life? Do I look at our worship service as that? or just another activity, do I miss the heart of worship the way the disciples did? And of course, I would never murmur to myself about anything going on in a worship service, right? I have, I have often sat there in various venues of worship as though I was the inspector general, speaking to myself, oh, that was really good, that moved me. We'll use that some other time. Oh, that was poorly done. That didn't belong there. I don't like that kind of music. I have missed the heart of worship. 
And then, would I ever say something to another person? Ask my wife if I would ever say anything about worship. I do. Because I'm the master. I know it all how it should be. It's not that I don't value Christ. It's I don't understand worship. And though there's a place for us to help one another when we understand, say, what our worship leaders and our worship team is trying to do in worship, to to offer a word of help to them accomplish what they're trying to do, but so often people would actually scold. The people were pouring themselves out in worships, not because they understand what the worship they're trying to bring, but because we have our own personal preferences and likes and dislikes, and we look at worship through those, and we can actually scold those who lead worship. And we can sit back objectively and look at the disciples and say, oh, what a mess they are in this passage. But I've had to come and look at myself and say, what a mess I am when I come to worship. Because it is all about expressing how valuable Christ is. And you know, fortunately, there are people that are not like me. I can remember in Watertown, a precious, sweet, older lady. And we were starting to introduce praise choruses. And, of course, it it upset some people because it's personal taste. And, of course, she's there and going, this is wonderful because it praises God. Everything in worship. You know, you'd ask her, does this, no, we've come to worship Christ. No matter what form we're using, no matter what music we're doing, I'm worshiping Christ. It's nothing about personal taste. It's all about Christ. See, I want to be like her. And Brandon shared that when we put the search team together looking for uh, our, our music director, that there were people on there that had very specific preferences for styles of worship. And you know what they did? They said, I have this preference, but it doesn't matter because what I want as a person will help all of us worship. I want to be like them, not like the disciples. So... Another thing we see in the essence of worship is how Jesus Christ is magnified. Yes, we are to worship God the Father, but in this passage, she actually falls before Jesus on her knees. She pours out a year's worth of salary on the head of Jesus, and it flows down. And you know what Jesus does? He rebukes the disciples for trying to correct her about this. He says she's doing a good thing. And she's doing such an incredible thing that what she's doing is going to be remembered every time the gospel is preached. What's Jesus saying? He says, I am worthy to be worshipped. You know, that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. Uh, there are people who are in other religions or in cults and say, yeah, you, know, you worship God, but you've got the wrong God when you're worshiping Jesus. Or some might say, oh, Jesus never really asked for worship. Jesus wouldn't want to be worshiped. Yes, he does. He is central to our worship. Angels, when people come and when the angels come before them and they fall down and they start worshiping the angels, you know what the angels say? 
Say, get up. Don't worship me. I'm just an angel. You only worship God. Get up, get up. Jesus doesn't say that. He said, this will be remembered always. Jesus is to be exalted and lifted up. Is that some self-centered, egotistical thing? No. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you said he's our God. What does Jesus just say there? He says, I'm really not into receiving your glory. It's the Father who wants you to glorify me because the Father wants me to receive the glory that I am due. He wants me to be held to the value that you should hold me to. And it's the God you worship who says, worship me. One of my professors told about an encounter on an airplane with a person who was a Jehovah's Witness. And the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe Jesus is God or should be worshipped as God. And there are a number of verses in Scripture that point out that Jesus is God. But they take a different interpretation and often a different translation uh, and don't accept that. So they, the professor put out some of the standard verses and he saw that the Jehovah's Witness had the standard response. So he knew he was going to get nowhere with him. And so he said in the end, he said, you know, you, I worship Jesus as God and, and you don't. And so we're really worshiping different gods. He said, yeah, that's the case. Then the professor said, well, if I'm worshiping Jesus as God and he's not God, then I'm worshiping the wrong God. Because that's right, that's right. On the other hand, if you're not worshiping Jesus as God and he is God, then you're worshiping the wrong God. He goes, well, yeah, that, that would be right, too. And then the professor said, well, I don't know if we can settle it down here on earth. I guess we agree to disagree because, you know, since we don't know on earth here who to worship. But you know what? They know in heaven whom to worship. And he turned to Revelation 5.11, following he read, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying, To him who sits on the throne, the Father, and to the Lamb, Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. In heaven and everywhere in the spiritual realm, Jesus is being worshipped just like the Father. And if we are not including Jesus and we think that others worship God and we worship the same God, we are not, and the angels will tell you, we are not. The essence of worship is displaying the value, experience how important the treasure God is 
and Jesus Christ is. So the primacy of worship. I think we see one of the first worship wars take place in this passage. Because it's all about what you value. And this woman says, Jesus is my ultimate value. I pour out everything upon him. Disciples being more pragmatic, they have a different value. And they're saying, let's pour out our treasure on the poor. So the question is, which is more important? Each has its place. But which is more important in this worship war? And Jesus says, it's what Mary has done. And he corrects the disciples as they scold her. He says, she has done the right thing. She has done the good thing in pouring this out and worshiping me. Now, where does Jesus hold caring for the poor on, say, his strata of life? Does he say, you know, if you got a little bit left over, eh, take care of the poor? No. There is... It's hard to find anything more dear to the heart of God or of Christ than the poor and taking care of the poor. And what he's saying is he's not devaluing taking care of the poor. In fact, he's establishing it because he's saying you will have the poor to take care of and I anticipate and expect that you will throughout your life take care of the poor. He has the poor up here. It's just that he has worship up here. It has, takes the highest priority the most special place. And if it does, what does that mean for our worship? Uh, Tim Keller said this, defined worship. He said, the worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something that engages your entire being, intellect, emotion, and will. So worship is ascribing ultimate value to God and we respond to him with our entire beings to show that. That's exactly what we see with this woman. She's pouring, it, pouring herself out. She's taking her treasure she's poured on. She's embarrassing herself as she kneels before him and takes her hair down. The disciples are ridiculing her. She doesn't. It doesn't matter to her because when she ascribes ultimate value to Christ, she shows that in every way that she can. So when we come to worship, it isn't just an intellectual exercise. It isn't just a, an emotional experience. It isn't just a choice of the will. It's bringing all three together. So we should give our all in worship and we should give our all because of our worship. And what I mean is when worship holds primacy, it connects us with God himself and unites us with God. And that should begin to change our entire lives. Look at the woman's worship. Financially, she has taken possibly all that she has financially and poured it out for Jesus Personally, she has 
embarrassed herself. She's made a public uh, display of herself. Personally, she's given herself. Emotionally, you can just imagine uh, the heart that she's pouring out to Jesus as she gets down at her feet, the service of Christ as she washes his feet. And then the authenticity as she takes down her hair. In those days, when you took a woman in public was supposed to keep her hair bound up, it was immoral women who let their hair down. But she lets her hair down in order to serve Jesus. It doesn't matter to her what people think about her. She loves him. And we also use the term, you know, let down your hair. As, you know, let down your hair. Be yourself. And truly she is being herself in this authentic worship. Worship demands my life, my soul, my all. Worship flows into a transformation of life. Think of it this way. Jesus is not saying, don't care for the poor. We know he wants us to care for the poor. But what if we care for the poor before we worship? What if we care for the poor after we worship? There's a big difference. Uh, Bill Gates gives 10, he's given 10 billion plus, probably 10 billion plus dollars to take care of needs in this world. I think we should all admire him for that. That is very special. That is very giving. Not many people do that. We should admire him, give glory to Bill Gates. Now, I also heard a story about a couple. Both make a good amount of money, and they live on one salary, and they give the other salary completely away because they love Jesus Christ. Who gets the glory there? Say, wow, that's really special. Why did they do it? Because of what Christ has done for them. See, Christ gets the glory See, the beginning place is so important in the Christian life. And what we see here is she is so caught up in Jesus, it changes her actions, her response, her life. We are to give to the poor, but first we worship Christ. We get so caught up with him that we're compelled to do the things that are close to the heart of Jesus, caring for the poor. Worship, it shouldn't be something that we come on a Sunday and we leave on a Sunday and say, yeah, you know, I'm going to put that in my theological bank. That was a pretty good message. Or I like that song. I think I'm going to listen to that, you know, when I get home. We should have such an encounter with God in worship that it brings us back around God, puts him in the center. Uh, illustration I like is if you're upstairs, you might hear a clanging downstairs. You had to go clang, 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 clang. So you go downstairs and you realize, you know, your washing machine is doing this dance. 
And you go, oh, the problem, this big clanging is happening in the washing machine. So we don't say, I better buy a new washing machine. No, we, we stop it, we open it, and we realize the clothes are out of balance. So we take them and we redistribute them, and we close the lid, and hmm, it starts to hum. And that's what worship should do in our lives. Our lives kind of get out of balance. They start to clang around. When we worship, we stop before God. We start to understand what's most important, who's most important in life, and start to put the rest of the pieces of our life, redistribute them as they should be, because he is central. Worship should be our highest priority. And then we see in this passage the pattern for worship. Worship is actually a response to first beholding God. So our songs, our readings, our confession of faith are there to bring us into the presence of God where we start beholding him. And as we behold him in all his glory, all his wonder, all that he has done for us, all that he is, we get caught up with that and we start singing and we start getting excited or we start meditating. We start letting the spirit God in. And then as we worship and proclaim who he is, the value of who he is, we start uniting with him. So our prayers come into union with the prayers of Jesus. We want to hear from him, so we open the word and we hear God himself speaking to us and we long for that because we want to know him more deeply. And then we hear the call to service. We have worship, we have come together, now we go out bringing that into the world. See, that's, that's worship. That's the pattern of worship. We see it with this woman. She did, she gave everything. Why? Jesus said, she was anointing me for my burial. He said, now, did she fully understand that? I don't know. Did she understand that Jesus was about to go to the cross and so she's anointing him beforehand? Did she know that better than disciples? I don't know. Was this something that she had stored up and saved for to anoint his body and decided at this moment to pour it out? I don't know. But Jesus attributes to her act an anointing for his burial. He is going to the cross and he's going to be buried. He's going to die for us and he's going to be buried. And so what we see is the pattern of worship is to first look at God and then to respond to him. Um, William Temple, an archbishop of Canterbury, said, defined worship as quickening the conscience by the holiness of God, by feeding the mind with the truth of God, purging the imagination by the beauty of God, opening the heart to the love of God, and then devoting the will to the purpose of God. You see that order? It's we are just getting caught up with our Lord and seeing him for all he is, and it just brings our will in line with his. That's the pattern of worship. Now, when we talk about gospel-shaped worship, that's what we see in this passage. 
She is anointing his body for burial. She knows he is going to die. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And Jesus even says, every time the gospel is shared, her story is going to be shared. Worship. Her story of worship is shared every time the gospel is shared. The gospel is central to worship. It should shape our worship. Why? Because if worship is about beholding God in all his glory, we see the glory of God most clearly and fully at the cross. We say God is holy. And we can hear the angels say it. We can see people frightened by the holiness of God. But we don't understand the complete holiness of God until we see that God is so holy that the only way he can accept sinners if that sin is placed on his own son. Our sin is so bad before a holy God that it takes the death of the Son of God to forgive our sin. Now we have a whole new vision of the holiness of God. The mercy of God. It's shown throughout Scripture as he, he gives people what they don't deserve. Uh, he seems to do that over and over again to the Israelites in the wilderness. But we really see the mercy of God when we understand that we deserve eternal judgment from God. And yet in his mercy, he does not give us that. Why? Because of the cross, the grace of God. God's given many things to people we don't deserve. It's wonderful that God's grace is there. But the one thing we do not deserve because of our sin is an eternal life with him forever in bliss and in his glory. And that comes because of the cross. The sovereignty of God. Yes, we've seen his hand hold all of history together. But we don't see the magnitude of God's sovereignty until we see that every piece of history from before the foundation of the world, God had in his plan that he would send his son to come and to die for us. And that history would culminate around the cross and point toward the second coming of Jesus Christ. See, the faithfulness of God. We, see, we say God is faithful to his promise. But almost every promise in Scripture in one way or another, whether it be to Abraham or to Moses or to David or to Daniel, is pointing to Jesus Christ and ultimately the cross. We might even say we worship and honor God as we look out at the stars and we see the wonder of the creator God. And that is beautiful, but we don't understand the full wonders of that creator. Then we realize that the creator himself took off the robes of his glory and took on humanity. But he didn't just take on humanity. That would have been enough. He came as a servant to us, not to be served, but to be servant. And that would be enough. But he gave himself over to death for people, for the creature to crucify the creator. That would have been enough. But then he took on our sin. The creator himself took our, our sin and was separated from God the Father because of it. You see, it's the cross that magnifies every quality of God. And if we are going to behold him, we need to behold him in the fullest through the eyes of the cross. Um, Bob Coughlin said this, Every time we stand 
before people in singing God's praise, we stand before people like us who tend to forget who God is and why he is so worthy to be worshipped. And I am cut to the heart with that. Not because of who I stand with, but because of how I often stand. I stand not looking at the magnitude of the glory of God as I sing a song. I sing if I like that verse or not. If I, I need to be caught up with God, the essence of worship is the treasure and value I place on him. I need to make it a primacy of my life. And I need to understand worship is the pattern of looking at God, then letting that filter into uniting us as we will, changing our lives so we revolve around him. You know, Steve Green sang a song based on this story. And the first verse, he sings about the woman. And he likens her pouring out this perfume to pouring out her life for Jesus Christ. And in the second verse, he gives the reason why she was willing to pour out everything she had. And this is what he says. Lord, you were God's precious treasure. His loved and his own perfect son sent here to show me the love of the Father, just for love it was done. And though you were perfect and holy, you gave up yourself willingly. You spared no expense for my pardon. You were used up and wasted for me. We look at Jesus Christ, and his final verse is, what should the response be when we see that Jesus poured out his life for us? Lord, you were God's precious treasure. Lord, you were God's precious treasure, his loved and his own perfect son, sent here to show me the love of the Father, just for love it was done. I'm sorry I wrote down the second verse twice. <laughs> but essentially, what he's saying is, when we understand that he has poured out his life, for us, we cannot help but respond by pouring out our lives for him. That's true worship. Our Father, only your spirit can keep this message in our hearts and our lives. I pray that you would. Amen. <laughs>